we're going to look at the hiring process of God um, this evening. And sort of metaphorical, when you think about God hiring someone, you're not actually being hired like we would think. A little bit different. But what we're going to do is we're going to try to set the stage here and then we're going to look at some scripture. Do you remember the very first time you heard the words, you're hired? You got the job. Do you remember the first time you heard that? Were you shocked? Were you surprised? Perhaps the person who hired you just hired you because they needed the help. You know, one of those situations, we got to have someone come on, so we're going to hire him. Or perhaps they actually knew who you were and they knew you could get the job done. Um, I'm reading this book on uh, Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson that George got me. It's amazing. And uh, they're talking about all the jobs they did in some of the first jobs these famous lawmen are teamsters, they're, you know, uh, um, herding cattle across the, the Midwest, and they're, um, they're buffalo hunters, all that type of stuff. It's just incredible. And then I think of my first job, and that was working at Printex, stuffing letters into envelopes. And I'm like, why wasn't I hunting buffalo? Man, I could have been doing that if I was just born a little bit later, uh, earlier. Anyway, so it's just funny reading some of that stuff. So I thought we would ask, I would ask you guys, what was, someone tell me, the first job that you had, your very first job. You remember it. Don't be ashamed of it. <laughs> Just tell me the first job you have. Go ahead. Yes, sir, Al. A gun, a gun club at 11 years old, and no one got shot. Well, he didn't answer that, so we'll move on. That. No. Anybody else? What's the first job? Yes. Secretary, insurance company. Anybody else over here? First job. Yes, sir, Max? Well, my first one was 10 years old. 10 years old? Picking strawberries. I, we, were at, uh, we were in Oregon, and there was a pastor there who had asked some people what their uh, first job was. And uh, a lot of the people, it was picking berries. Uh, most everybody. That was their first one. Brother Adam, did you have your hand raised? Pizza maker at Papa Murphy's. I have a guitar student who has just started that job. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. Anybody else over here? Your very first job that you had. Yes, ma'am. Babysitter. Babysitter at 11. Chris's first job was a babysitter, and she did that for a couple of years, and she thought it was normal to make $2.50 an hour. So, yeah, exactly, yeah. So she was like, oh, man, the rates are a little bit different then. Anybody over here? Your first job. Yes, ma'am. Clerk in a Christian bookstore. Very nice. Anybody else? Yes. Subway. Eat fresh. Bacon sandwich, yes. Anybody else? Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Jeff worked at a bank. Very nice. Yeah, stuff in the envelopes. Then later they had machines that would stuff them for you. And it was like, oh my goodness, why didn't they invent this earlier? But we were literally take them, fold them, and put them in. And we only had 1,200 to do. So, you know, you just start working on that. And then you're finished by Friday, hopefully. Anybody else? First job. Yes, ma'am. Barbecue food truck. Yes. Best in the valley. Anybody else? All right, so it's interesting because we can always think of our very 
first job, okay? And mine, like I said, was at Printech. I had another job I'll tell you about in a little bit here. But whenever you first got hired, people remember that. And perhaps sometimes we can remember not so much, but we remember the first job we had for God. And this is important, too, working for the Lord, is because it's not because um, you had to. Sometimes we find in situations when we're young, you've got your first job, but it's because you have to. You're just working with your parents and stuff like that. Um, you're tagging along, so you have to do the work. But when we're working for the Lord, it, what makes it special is because we want to do that. When you first start out tithing, you think about the very first time you paid tithe, you gave God back what was His. Uh, that's such an important time. Giving your time, even we think about here, stacking chairs, rolling tarps, um, other places, driving a church bus, giving to missions, handing someone a track and inviting them to church, being a door greeter, teaching a class, cleaning the bathrooms, taking out trash, etc. One of the things I love to tell people about the testimony of this church is that we are all workers. Everybody works. Well, not everybody, but most people. We all get stuff afterwards. If we break stuff down, we tear uh, stuff down after church, and then we uh, set stuff up, and it is a wonderful, wonderful atmosphere of people who help. And even if someone isn't helping stack chairs, the friendliness, talking to other people. We've talked to people before um, and uh, who have asked, what can I do? And you can talk to people. You can be that friendly face that a visitor sees and someone they get to talk to whenever they come into our church. And that is such a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's a job. No job is too small. It's all great in the eyes of the Lord. So let's take a look here in Luke chapter 6. We see here in the scriptures that God is always, as we would say, hiring, but not in the terms that we are used to. In fact, it's quite the opposite from what we would consider a job. When we look at the job requirements, you might say, we see a great reversal when it comes to the kingdom of God because it goes total in the opposite direction of human nature. And it's one of the reasons why Paul talked about because I am a servant, uh, no man owns me. You know, no man, no man is above me because I am a servant, which is the lowest form you would think. So we see the opposites there, which is incredible because so much, so many times in the Bible, we, what we need to do is not what we think, it's what God thinks. Let's look here in Luke chapter 6, and let's look down in verse 27. And what we see here is we see the Beatitudes. Christ is talking to his disciples. He's talked to the multitude, and then he turns to his disciples. And we're going to jump down in verse 27, and this is what he says. He says, But I say unto you which here love your enemies, do good to them which hate you. Verse 28, Bless them that curse you and pray for them that despitefully use you. That's very, very hard to do. Very, it's one thing we don't think of. Krista and I have been despitefully used, not because we were wonderful people. No, it's just a part of life. And that's something that happens. And I'm not telling you that to say, we were despitefully used one time, and then we overcome that and we showed grace. No, I was not happy, okay? And the last thing that I was thinking about doing was praying for that person. It's just nature. Someone uses you, it's like, well, I'm never doing business with them again, or I'm not going to deal with them again, or I'm not going to, we want to break that off. Or perhaps we take it another step and we say, I'm going to get revenge. Yeah, I'm going to get even. Don't get mad. Get even. You know, we say down in the South, there's a wise saying that says, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, I'll kill you. There's a good one to think about that. So... You can use that with your kids if you want, but be careful because you've got to back it up if you're going to say it. So anyways, we're going to move on, though, from that. So 
Pray for those which despitefully use you. And that's something we have control over. So that's one thing in that situation that Chris and I would say is we just need to pray for them. We just need to pray for them, you know, and we had to, uh, we had to follow through on that. It's not easy. Verse 29, and unto him that smiteth thee on one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee. And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. Verse 31, And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive... What thank have ye for sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again? Verse 35, but love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. That is incredible that God is kind to the unthankful. What's one thing we teach our kids to do? To say thank you. We try to, to instill in them a habit of saying thank you, but we see that God is even kind. He even shows grace and mercy to those who do not thank him. Verse 36, be ye therefore merciful as your father also is merciful. So we see this job description here of a follower of Christ and it seems almost impossible. It's like how on earth could I do all of those things? Try fulfilling one of those things. Don't even look at all of them right now. Let's just choose one of those. Bless them that curse you. Traffic, think about that, all right? No cutting people off, no, no returning in kind. Pray for them which despitefully use you. We all know how hard that is, okay? Some person smites thee on the cheek, offer the other. Okay, no one's gonna call you a wimp. You know, don't worry about that. Someone who takes something away, offer them something else. We go through this entire thing. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. And we see there the reason why, because God shows us that same mercy as well. So how could God require all of that from a bunch of sinners? Surely he knows how hard it is for us to do things that he says. Surely he knows how hard it is for us to do one of those things. But it's like with the Beatitudes, Christ piles the stuff on. Or we'll hear statements like, you should love your spouse, love your wife as I have loved the church. And we hear that and we go, that's impossible. What's well, not meaning that we're gonna be able to follow through to the T, it's something that we should shoot for. And what we need to do is, even though we are sinners, we need to look and we need to focus on one very, very important thing. Christ gives us these commandments. Christ tells us these things, but we also need to look at where he brought us from because we need to understand that Christ uses broken vessels all the time. We think we are unusable because we judge. We're humans. We naturally judge. There's no way God could use me because I did this and this, and I'm not going to be happy because I broke this law of God, and now God has to make me pay, so I figure he's going to make me do this, this, and this, and be miserable for at least 20 or 30 years, and then maybe I'll work that off. And we get into this crazy mentality where we bring ourselves down, but God can use you and he can transform you into something that is wonderfully 
unrecognizable to your old self. Have you ever looked back at your old self and you wouldn't recognize them? You know, think about that. Where I came from, if I am where I'm at right now, if I looked back, would this person where I started off at, would they even recognize what God has done for me in the future? I think it's incredible when we see how God has changed over and over and over again in the scripture. We see the life of Christ and how Christ changed people he came into contact with. And what we see is, we see with today, with uh, a lot of the prosperity gospel, and then we see a lot of the gospel today uh, uh, preached in different pulpits about how basically you don't need to change. It's the craziest thing to me because what Jesus charged people, he did not judge them in anger or hate. What he did is he, ch he showed love and then he said, change, go and sin no more. There was a standard that Christ had with that. So God does have standards for us. And one such example we can see of transforming a broken vessel can be found in the book of Mark. So let's take a look over there in the book of Mark. The book of Mark, and we're going to look in um, chapter 5 in this. I think it is, I think it's an incredible, an incredible story here. Mark chapter 1. Sorry, Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Don't listen to what I say, listen to what I think. Okay, so if I'm thinking it, I need you to do that. And that would really, that would really help. Um, all right, so Mark chapter 5 and verse 1. And they came over to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And we know the story. This is the maniac of Gadara. We've read this story before. We know how it goes. A man who could not be tamed by the philosophies of man. He could not be tamed. He could not, uh, uh, there was no problem that he had. Uh, the problems that he had could not be fixed by man's philosophies or man's mind. He could not be held by the strongest chains they could produce. So in short, what we see is we see a hopeless man with a lost cause. And that is exactly who Jesus deals with. That is exactly who God uses. People who are hopeless. Because we were all like that. We might not have been running around screaming and cutting ourselves, but we were just as hopeless on the inside as this man was before we knew Christ. Let's look in verse 3 of Mark chapter 5. Who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. Because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. So obviously we see that people have tried to do that. He's a broken vessel. Man cannot put him back together again. Verse 5, And always, day and night, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. We think about that. What a contradiction, you know? A man who lives like that, the first thing he sees when he sees Christ, he runs and worships him. Then we have sane people all around Jesus who go, eh, in Jesus' own hometown. Now nah, they have no belief. They're not impressed by him at all. Okay? So when we think about that contradiction, to the atheist out there, even the demons know of God. Okay? Even the demons know of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then the person who stands out there and says, there is no God. 
There's no way. Prove to me that there is a God. God tells us he's before all of his creation. He's before all these things. Uh, and even the wicked, wicked, demonic uh, uh, beings inside this man recognized who Jesus Christ was. And we, as sane people, have such a problem with that. I think that's sad. Verse 7. So come, they come and they worship him, the demons do, and cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. I have a side note here. It's very interesting. What did the demon not want? The demon did not want to be tormented here. One thing that demons are afraid of is the coming judgment. They're afraid of that. They fear that. Satan's afraid of that. He fears that. Okay? Over and over again, we see that in the scripture. So do wicked men. Why is it that Jesus is so vilified over so many of the other religions out there? You can, I can go, I can believe in the giant bullfrog okay, of Cuna Caves, and I can start this religion about this bullfrog out there that knows everything. There's actually religions out there worshiping um, this god frog thing. Mike Tyson talks about it. It's very, very strange. So um, anything Mike says is strange. Anyways, we're going to move on. So uh, uh, when we, if someone comes up with something like that, people will go, oh, okay, if that's what he believes. But when you start talking about Jesus, then people change. And it's incredible because I've talked to people. Uh, I was talking to um, a guy who had turned into an atheist, and, and um, he used to be a Mormon. And I talked to him a couple of months ago. And it was very interesting because we were talking and debating about creation and we went through stuff and there was um, over two hours talked to him one night. Chris witnessed him, I talked to him and reasoning about science was very interesting because towards the last night when I re we really got into the Bible and what does it say about Jesus Christ, that's when things changed. Instead of being, uh, well I don't agree with you on this, well I actually think this means this, well I don't see that, now we're talking about who Jesus Christ was and then the demeanor changed. And what you see is you'll, you, I found, I saw a nice guy turn mean because now there's fear involved there. Fear of what? Of judgment for your sins. Very, very scared of that. Even the demons are afraid of that because they know what is coming. The armies of darkness know that day will come. So they don't want to be tormented. Verse 8, And he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place, and into the sea there were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. You can see this place if you go to Israel. You look over there where uh, uh, the Gadarenes would be. It's amazing. It's the only spot there you really see around the Sea of Galilee where you have those cliffs and the drop-off. Just fascinating. Okay, so in verse 14, and they that, fled, uh, that fed the swine fled. They weren't afraid of them. They weren't spooked of the man now. They're freaked out about what happened to their pigs and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was uh, uh, what it was that was done. Verse 15, And they come to Jesus and see him, this is so interesting, that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And then it says four very important words, 
and they were afraid. Isn't it interesting how we see this thought throughout the scripture? We see a very um, harrowing experience uh, going on. Then we see a miracle, and then we see fear by those who experienced the miracle. We see that in Jonah. Whenever Jonah was cast over, people were afraid, we're going to die, we're going to die. And they were afraid. And then the Bible says after he was thrown over and then it was silent, then they were very afraid. Okay, now they're like, oh, then they're in awe, not of the storm. They're in awe of the power of God. And that's where the true fear of God is. So we see that. We see on the ship there, the men are afraid. Jesus, don't you afraid we're going to die? Jesus calms the storm. Then the men are afraid. The disciples are afraid. Jesus, okay, think about this. I was afraid of the storm. Now I'm really freaked out because this man just spoke and now the storm is quiet. You know, what manner of man is this? So we see a contrast here. This is what we see. The disciples were afraid after Jesus calmed the storm around them. Check this out. The worldly people were afraid when Jesus calmed the storm inside the man. It's interesting because just picture this with me, if you will. See of Galilee. There's a huge storm going on there. The storm is on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus and the disciples are in the storm. The storm stops. They all experience that. But everybody else around the Sea of Galilee had to have seen the storm. Because there's this crazy storm going right now, and then all of a sudden, well, dear, we're not going to get to go to supper because there's a huge storm. Wait a minute, it stopped. You look out there, and it's completely quiet, and you have this boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee who then comes ashore. It's got to be fascinating. Everyone could see this. Obviously, the men who are watching the swine had to have witnessed that. They don't go to Jesus. The only person who runs to Jesus is the man full of devils. So they're not spooked by any of that stuff. What they're afraid of is this is a guy who acted like that, who we tried to cure, who we tried to fix. And a man comes by and completely changes what he is on the inside. He's not chained him down. Perhaps if they had come and they had seen Jesus and Jesus was sitting there and they had find, the disciples tackled him and they captured him and they wrapped him up in chains. Well, thank you for doing that. What scared them was that Jesus actually changed the heart of the man and they didn't want any part of that at all. Verse 16, when they saw it, told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and all concerning the swine, they began to pray him to depart out of their coast. So will you please leave? Such an interesting welcome party or a happy time. Okay, you did this wonderful thing. Will you please leave? Because we're really uncomfortable with what is going on here. Verse 18, and this is where we come to the most important part of the story. If you want, if you want to help, if you want Jesus to help you, Jesus will help you. If you ask him to leave, I don't want anything to do with him. Jesus is not going to help you during this time. So we see in verse 18, and when he was coming to the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit, Jesus suffered him not and said unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. He didn't say how, all the stuff he's done. Tell him how God has had compassion on you. There were three, you think about it, there are really three prayer types in this um, story right here. We have the request of the demon, the legion. He wants, don't, please don't make us leave the country. Let us go into that swine. Jesus grants that. 
The people said, please leave our coast. Will you please leave? Jesus said, okay, I'll grant that. Now we have the third one coming from the man who used to be the maniac. And he says, let me come with you. And Jesus says, no, you're not going to come with me because I have something even better for you. I have a special job for you. I want you to go home and tell everyone what, I, what God has done for you and had, how he has had compassion on you. Isn't it interesting he tells him to go home? The change we have in our life should start at home. Don't you think? Think Instead of around other people, well, God has changed me. I sure hope they see it at work. No, how about they see it at home and then let it trickle out into the other aspects of your life? But it should start at the house. Don't tell me all these wonderful things that God has done if the home is still horrible, if you still haven't given that part over to the Lord. It needs to begin at the house. But it didn't just end there. Let's look in verse 20. And he departed and began to publish, began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. It's interesting because when you think about this, the impossible thing is not living for Christ. The impossible thing is not looking at some of the things God points out in the Beatitudes and go, there's no way I could do that. The impossible thing is washing away your own sins. The impossible thing is redeeming yourself. And that's what Jesus did. So Jesus did what was impossible. He defeated death. He defeated sin. And now Jesus said, here are some guidelines I want you to live by if men are to know that you are my disciples. Okay? You, that, that you, we, to show love to one to, uh, one to another if men are going to know that you are um, my disciples. Now, the maniac is a changed man. Go home and tell others what has happened to you. You are basically a hired ambassador of Christ. Isn't it interesting that God didn't use angels as his ambassadors? Think about that. He chose Jonah to go tell the, the wickedest city in the West, okay? That's what they call Dodge City. That's how that popped into my head. So the wickedest city in the side of the world over there, Nineveh. If you study that, read what Josephus said about Nineveh. Absolutely horrifying, the things that went on there. You're going to be my ambassador, Jonah. Couldn't God, if God could see these people, if they would repent, why wouldn't God send a legion of angels? And surely then the people would repent. God doesn't work like that. God uses us broken vessels to do his bidding. So this new man is an ambassador of Christ and he had a job to do and he did it well. And we know with Decapolis, if you study that, that's 10 cities that heard the gospel and all men did marvel. So the job that God has for us is always worth it. It does not matter on our accomplishments. That's the thing we have got to get over. We are broken vessels God can use you to do things not based on your own accomplishments, okay? Let me tell you real quick here, and we'll close, my first non-official job. Talk about things that are not worth it. A buddy of mine, Josh, came and told me, he said, I've got this job. I don't know if you want in on it, okay? And you're going to get paid. And I was like, what kind of job is that? So he said, because we always needed money for good things like candy, video games, um, uh, new toys like hatchets and other stuff like that. M machetes are really good. We love to build forts. All those other things out in the swamp. BB guns, anything you can get your hands on. So we were looking like, dude, let's, we're going to earn some money here. And he told me, Josh told me, and he actually told my brother John as well. He said, we're going to go, I got this job demolishing this house. Pa his parents used to do some of that stuff. And they would make money knocking houses over 
for a living. And we're like, you mean we can destroy a house and they will pay us to destroy that house? Yes. Where do I sign up? So we're like, dude, this is great. We had a couple of hammers. We had a crowbar. We had a um, sledgehammer. And that was basically it. No one told us about dynamite because that would have really helped. So we decided to go down there. And good news, we built, we're going to break this house down and it's, we're going to get paid $100 to do it. And we're like, $100 to break this house down? Yes. Dominic knows what I'm talking about. Dominic's ready to sign up right now. So, we're, but Dominic, let's finish the story first. So we go and we decide uh, we're going to do this. We're going to go destroy this house. We're going to get paid. We're going to knock it down in a day, maybe two, a little weekend fun here. We would enjoy knocking stuff down. So we go down there and we mess around for the first day. And oh, it's fun. They have a chimney. Honest to goodness, only the Lord in heaven knows how I am still alive today because of the foolishness that went on. So we got this up there. I'm up on the thing, this tin roof, and we're knocking stuff out. And we're like, literally, timber! And we push the chimney, get the chimney pulled over, and it crashes down through the house. And we're like, this is incredible. How is this house still standing? And we're up on top of it. And so we work our way down. We're knocking beams down. One day turns into two days. That turns into three days. Now we're going down there and we're spending all day. Come to find out the guy who's so generously paying this $100 is he wants us to separate the material. So boards, bricks, tin, metal. If you can take some of the nails out, good. We'll do all that stuff and put these things over here. Let's get all this stuff. And we're like, guys, this is really taking some time. A little bit later, about day five, I had a beam fall on my head that knocked me senseless. And about that far from my head, there were these nails coming down and it just missed me. And that, so I have all of that stuff. I'm laying on the ground. I can't believe all this has happened. I don't even know what's going on. So we keep working. A couple of days later, my buddy Josh is reaching for, I don't know if it was me or John, one of us, who knows. We're throwing bricks out of the house and Josh reaches to grab a brick. And as he grabs a brick, another brick lands on his finger and the tip of his finger disappears. Boom. So Josh is, ah, he's holding it. And it was like, oh my goodness. Well, Josh had just, he had just got his driver's license then. And so we're driving to the ER. Josh is holding his hand. Well, we go tell his mom first, and then we go to the ER. Josh has all these problems. It's an $800 bill to get that fixed up. So our money collective together will not pay for the, the, the bill. So we have all these things going on, and we're telling ourselves, guys, this is fun, right? This is fun. And we're sitting at the hospital with poor Josh as they're working on his finger. And we kept going out there. Finally, after two weeks, two weeks, of all these things happening, we realized we were spending more time at the hospital than at the house working. And we we're paying money to actually go to the hospital and we were nowhere near getting done. So I did what any ethical, good, hardworking young man did. I quit. And I said, you guys, see you later. I'm not coming back. So because I did not finish the work, I was only paid $75 instead of the $100, which I was like, Give me the money. I'll take it. Let me just get out of here. So to quote Napoleon Dynamite, that's like a dollar an hour. That is literally almost exactly what I made. One dollar an hour working there, uh, tearing that down. I learned a valuable lesson from my first non-official job. Whenever you're young, the chances of you making dumb choices are really high. So listen to your parents. Before I took the job, 
my mom and my dad told me it would be a waste of time and I should not take that job. And I was like, dude, I'm hanging out with my bros. Man, we're going to have a good time. I should have listened to them. It was not worth it. All the stuff we did, it was not worth it. <laughs> There's my way, and I found out from that, my way is not worth it. The thing is, is my dad had known about that, my mom had known about that, and they could foresee that. And they told me, they tried to warn me it's not worth it, and I did it anyway. Later, I got my first real job at Printec, and it was actually paying money to go there, and I worked there and actually made um, some money doing that. So that leads me into my closing here. Can I tell you that God's way is always worth it? We've all been through times, and that's a, a, a horrible story that uh, of two years. We do have some funny stories from it, though. But we think about the times we've wasted in our life. There's been times we've done things our own way, and then we look back at that and we go, it was not worth it. It just wasn't worth it. There's no way me putting all of my time into that was worth it in the end. But God always is worth it. He has our best interest. Now, where you're at right now might not line up with what you thought you would be doing at this point in your life. But one thing is certain, if you are in God's path, His will for you, if you are reading it, suppose you say, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Stay faithful. Read God's word. Speak with Him daily. God's going to show you. You might, you might be in a holding pattern right now, in an eddy, you might say, of a river, but God still is in control, okay? It's worth it if it's from the Lord, working for Him because He loved you first. God is always hiring, and there is no greater privilege that we have in this life than working for God. does not matter what we chase. Everyone has their desires, their wants out there. Nothing will bring you satisfaction like working with the Lord and walking with the Lord every single day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our time together. Lord, we, no matter what we think, there's always something to do for you. You're always hiring, you might say. Father, there's always something that we can step up and do. And perhaps it might not be something physical due to limitations, but Father, certainly to tell others of you, to spread your gospel, pass out tracts, give to ministries, to people who are able to go out like missions and other areas like that. Father, I pray that you will help us to be mindful of jobs and other areas where we can step up and trust you, Father. We're broken vessels, each and every one of us, but like we see with the story that you so eloquently have in your scripture, Lord, about the maniac of Gadara, you had compassion on us just like you had on him. Father, we have no excuse to sit by idle while other people do stuff. Father, help us. Guide us, Lord. Teach us along the way so we can get working for you. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.